Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. Hello, I've decided that with unions and strikes in the news so much lately, that I should do a series on labor unions and management relations. What that entails to give people who may not know how it began, what the framework is, the laws that govern, assuming that there are laws, and there are, and why we do the things we do in connection with labor and management relations. My guest today, Dean Burrell, is the perfect first guest. He's had experience in all facets of labor management relations. And his current position gives him, positions him, I should say, to be instrumental in resolving labor management disputes. So without further ado, Mr. Dean Burrell, the consummate dispute resolution artist. Hi, Dean. How are you? And thank you for your patience. I sincerely appreciate it. Again, technological difficulties, technical difficulties, however you want to, however you want to phrase it. Technology is fine as long as there it works go. right. Good morning, Beverly. Thank you so much for that kind intro. First, I'll explain what I do, and then I'll explain how I got there. You had suggested a half an hour time limit, which I'm happy to to comply with and hopefully it'll be a little less. So there you go. So as you mentioned, I am an arbitrator and a mediator. I am a complete neutral. I don't work for anybody but me. I am very fortunate in that regard. And first, let me explain to you what an arbitrator does and what a mediator does. An arbitrator essentially is a judge for hire. I decide disputes, and I decide who's right and who's wrong, and I fashion a remedy should I find that the employer 
improperly fired someone? Should I find that they breached a collective bargaining agreement or that the union breached a collective bargaining agreement? Because a collective bargaining agreement is a contract and either side can breach that contract. So that is the labor, traditional labor portion of arbitration. The another aspect of arbitration is what's called interest arbitration. Interest arbitration is we don't want police and fire to strike for obvious reasons. So when they're unable to reach a contract, they bring in an arbitrator, and it's called interest arbitration, who essentially writes the deal for them. That means that the interest arbitrator decides the annual wage increases. There may be different benefit questions. There may be pension questions. It's my job as the interest arbitrator to come in and make that determination. There's also something called fact-finding. Fact-finding is common in New Jersey for teachers. And also, I know public libraries come under that statute. And the idea there is that we don't mind if teachers strike eventually, but let's do everything we can to help that process of them reaching closure for a new collective bargaining agreement. So typically, under fact-finding in New Jersey, the parties will engage in collective bargaining. One party will declare impasse, typically the union, but not always. And they then come before me. They present their proofs. I make recommendations as to a proposed settlement agreement or, or a new collective bargaining agreement, which the parties are then free to disregard. Should they do that, eventually, through the statute, they could strike. As everyone who lives in Jersey knows, that is not often the case, though there certainly have been strikes recently. So we've talked about traditional labor arbitration. We've talked about interest arbitration. We've talked about fact-finding. Now, I also do employment arbitration. Employment arbitration is where several different types. It could be, for example, the parties have decided that claims of workplace harassment or discrimination such as race, religion, creed, national origin, etc. will go to arbitration as opposed to going to court. This is somewhat controversial. Most plaintiff attorneys, i.e. those who represent the claimants, the aggrieved employee, don't like it. Sometimes they do, but typically they feel that the awards are less. They feel that arbitrators may be biased. There's less discovery where the parties get to find out the documents and facts of the other side's case. So that is their view, and, and certainly I take no opinion there. But that is one of the things that I do, which is I will decide as a quasi-judge whether or not the employer 
engaged in discrimination, whether they permitted workplace harassment to take place, also whether there was a breach of contract. And these types of contracts, for example, senior executives, which I was at one point, and I'll get into that in a few minutes, may be bound because they have certain knowledge of the industry or of their employer that could be valuable to competitors. And if they're hired by a rival, the parties may go to arbitration there. So there are any number of aspects of employment arbitration. So that is also something that I do. So that's arbitration, quasi-judicial. The employment piece is gaining much, much more attention. And uh, my practice has really zoomed since COVID on the employment mediation piece, because frankly, in New Jersey, it was probably taking a couple of years to get into court if you filed a suit under the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination, which is the Title VII equivalent in New Jersey. Uh, However, with COVID, there is just no telling. And it is um, increasingly being used also in New Jersey There is a shortage of judges. They are not being replaced as quickly as they retire. And why they're retiring at an accelerated rate post-COVID is is an entirely different discussion. However, that is happening. So this may be an option for the parties. Again, plaintiff attorneys, especially those who are doing Title VII type race, religion, workplace harassment, sexual orientation, etc., prefer not to go to arbitration. They prefer to go to court. However, the alternative, because it is taking so long, is mediation. Now, mediation is a process where a third party endeavors to bring the parties to agreement. In New Jersey, if you file a civil suit, you have to go to mediation. If you are engaged in private sector collective bargaining, there is the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, which offers mediation. As part of the interest arbitration process, which I mentioned before for police and fire and fact-finding for teachers, mediation is a mandatory aspect. And I will tell you, almost all of my cases settle in mediation, the interest arbs, and the fact-finding. A large percentage of my traditional labor, both public and private sector, cases settle through mediation. It is expected. It is what the parties anticipate. It allows them to zealously represent their members without especially in labor, traditional labor, where we'll see each other again, to not poison a well. So mediation is a voluntary process. Now, of course, we get to charge for it. So this is what I do for a living. This is how I pay my rent. So I also do a large number of employment mediations, which, as I mentioned, has really zoomed post-COVID, when the parties are appreciating that they're not going to go into court anytime soon. Plus, it makes sense. 
if I can persuade the parties to settle a case for under six figures, it makes sense for employers to do that. Because if you look at the cost of getting through a motion for summary judgment, if you're the employer or a motion to dismiss, and then settling whatever's left, it's going to be a lot cheaper than actually going to court, which is a good six figures. Let me just ask you a question. Do you think amending the National Labor Law, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, to make mediation mandatory is the right direction to go into to sure. avoid well, we'll tell some you of what. these Let me strikes? tell you how I got here, and then I can answer that question because it's a great question, Beverly. So how I got here, long story short, and I will keep it short, is I, I'm a New York kid. I went to Brooklyn Tech. My dad was an architectural draftsman, which was very unusual back in the day for people of color. And I went to Brooklyn Tech. I was going to be an engineer. And Cornell University had the uh, good sense to throw me out of their engineering school. Thank goodness. And what people don't know is that Cornell has both state and private schools within the Cornell system in Ithaca, New York. So I wound up transferring because I'd lost my scholarships. Yeah. Anyway, I wound up in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Didn't know anything about it. Unions and black folks have had a interesting history, shall we say, and people of color are now certainly front and foremost in the union movement. But back in the day, you know, turn of the century, a number of the unions had black folks, white folks, et cetera, together. Others did not. But long story short, I wound up at the school. I could afford it. It was state tuition. It was the same as SUNY. And 40% of our alum went to law school. I said, gee, that might be pretty good. So I did that, did uh, human resources and labor relations representing management for about seven years and went to law school at night. First law degree from American, second law degree from Georgetown in labor and employment, both at night. I was seeing new episodes of The Cosby Show into the 2000s because I kind of missed all the 80s. So anyway, I, in terms of my career, I spent about 10 years in public service with the District of Columbia Public Employee Relations Board, the National Labor Relations Board, which enforces the rights of people to engage in union activities or to refrain from those that requires employers to bargain in good faith and unions. And I did that for about 10 years. And then I spent 10 years in private practice, primarily here in New Jersey, and appearing before the National Labor Relations Board. So I switched sides representing employers and also did a fair amount of employment law. And then I went in-house. I was director of labor relations for Penske Truck Leasing. So every time you see a Penske truck, the big yellow ones, we used to say that was our bonus. Uh, so 
And then I went from there and became vice president of labor relations for Republic Services, the big trash company. They're number two. And they also own Allied Waste and BFI or Browning Ferris. I had about half a dozen folks working for me, about 150 collective bargaining agreements and about 700 locations. Post-merger, I didn't work there. Yeah, that happens. They wrote me a check. So I, uh, and the rest of it, and, and Beverly, you know, John Sands, the arbitrator. I was, by this point, I was president yeah. of Cornell's Labor Relations Alumni Association. And I was living in Scottsdale, Arizona, loving it. And I was back east for a board meeting. I was walking through Newark Airport and I ran into John. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I've always wanted to do what you do. And he said, you've been telling me that for 15 years. Let me know when you're ready to stop screwing around. Except if you know John, <laughs> he didn't say screwing around. So I wound up moving back here. And actually, I spent about a year and a half doing a biweekly commute between his place in West Orange, his basement, and my gorgeous house in Scottsdale, Arizona. After about a year and a half, his wife threw me out of the basement. I love his wife. She said, what to, I said, what took you so long? I would have thrown me out a year ago. So anyway, moved back here. My practice, I have been so fortunate. Yeah, I carried John's bag. It was an old school apprenticeship. I carried his bag. I wrote drafts of awards. Uh, I drove him to hearings. I did that for a couple of years. and. He said, if you're any good after two years, you'll be too busy to drive me around. And I was. But you know, John, he is my dearest friend, my mentor. An exceptional person. Yes. An exceptional yes. person. Yes. And uh, he has just been a mention and has had my back. And, you know, I've been very... But that goes to something else, mm -hmm. though. Dean, mentorship. Mm -hmm. Finding someone who you respect, who's knowledgeable, respected in the industry, the profession that you want to join. Right. And learn what you can from that person. Right. right. That's really important. It's important for networking. It's important for acquiring knowledge yep. and how to conduct oneself professionally in the industry you seek to become a right. part of. Yeah, I've never been methodical with that. I have made good choices and quote-unquote bad choices in terms of my mentors, in terms of folks having juice. The law firm that I was with here a number of years ago did not have a mentor who took me through the process. And frankly, for people of color in law firms, it, as you know, I am former chair of the Black Bar of New Jersey, the uh, Garden State Bar. And I still see the story as, as being the same in terms of Black partners and even associates. We get churned out. I think we can talk about this offline right. at your convenience, but there are letters that have been sent out by attorneys saying, in light of the Supreme Court's recent decision, DEI 
is almost dead in the water. And you shouldn't, directing companies not to even consider it, right. or they may be called into court. Well, we, we are in at least our second post-reconstruction period now. We had a decent run. And frankly, you know, you began hearing about DEI after more black folks got shot, which I would have liked to have heard about that a little bit more. But you know what? We don't die, we multiply, right? Uh, So, you know, what's important is that in terms of, of this profession is that I think people of color and more diverse mediators and arbitrators are starting to come to the forefront and it is essential. So anyway, that's that's how I got here. So I have been so fortunate, so blessed in my career to have had good folks. Back to your, oh, the other piece that I would like to emphasize is you have to be involved. I am on a lot of different levels. So I am currently on the board of New Jersey Lira Labor Employment Relations Association, which is a national organization of those of us who do collective bargaining for a living, both union management and neutrals. I am secretary of New York City's Lira chapter. I am former president of Arizona's Lira chapter, or as I like to say, all five of us, because they don't like unions in Arizona. Uh, So... So I've been involved with that. I was president of the New Jersey uh, State Black Bar, which won the National Bar Association Affiliate of the Year because all of these young lawyers just, just swarmed all over this organization. They are wonderful. And I am outgoing chair of the National Bar Association Alternative Dispute Resolution section. I've done three terms. We've done some wonderful things, and it's time I pass the baton. I am also immediate past chair of the State Bar Dispute Resolution section in New Jersey. So long story short, if there's two traditional labor lawyers gathering under a tree drinking beer, I'm there, okay? because you have to market yourself. That's important. That's right. important. And that's something I didn't do. I'm not a joiner. Yeah. I'm a worker. You know, I go to work. I work. I, you know, I'm not that person. Right. But in retrospect, that was a mistake that I made. I should have joined. And you're right to emphasize it to listen. Right. You need to be involved. You need to make contacts. You need to learn from people. You will not learn as much as you need to, as much as will benefit you if you don't do it. And I will tell you this profession, I am fortunate to have been all different sides of traditional labor law now for 40 years. I started out, I spent a number of years with the government as a government litigator, got to do cutting-edge litigation. It was wonderful. I spent 10 years in private practice, 10 years in a corporate setting. I've been a union representative. I've been a neutral. I have been all sides of this. And 
I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed it. But when I put out my shingle as a neutral, and they said, ah, it's going to take you five years. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I know everybody. I've been doing all of this stuff. I'm, you know, president of the Alumni Association. It took me five years. And as soon as I, oh, it took really? me, I was in the black. With all that you did? Yep. I was in the black financially beginning my second year, which is unusually quick because I got on the New York City Department of Education and NYSED, New York State Union of Teachers, uh, AFT affiliate. I got on their panel, and then I got on the 32BJ, which is the Doorman Maintenance Workers Union in New York, and that got me in the black pretty quick. But in terms of getting my calendar to where I wanted it, it took me five years. Where I had typically about three to four hearings or mediations a week, and I don't want to work any more than that. You, you know, I, I am not a, a youth. Uh, so, so I'd like to, to kind of start taking it easy. I'm almost 70. But then as soon as that five years hit, and I started thinking, ah, do I want to go out and hire a secretary, get some help with the scheduling and billing? COVID hit. I didn't have a case for six months. And now, post-COVID, my practice is busier than ever. And it ebbs and flows. It's like anything else. I'm not, anything I'm else. not turning away work, that's for sure. On the other hand, I am at the point where, you know, there's folks who I don't want to work with and folks who don't want to work with me. That's okay. It's nice to have yeah, choices. there you go. There you go. Yeah. I'm going to let you go because of our delay, and I promise to get you out. If you promise to come back and answer my question. I can answer it right now if you'd like. I would rather okay. have you come back. Okay. Happy to do it, Beverly. Then I have a commitment from you that I know you'll honor. Oh, man. Oh, man. There you go. Well, I'm, I'm No, seriously. We have to think about, I mean, the NLRA has been around since the 40s. Oh, uh, the 30s. The 30s? Well, I'm thinking about the amendment. I'm thinking about the last amendment. But it's time to think about amending it. This is crazy. You know, and again, as a neutral, I can take no position. I understand. I, I will tell you, I um, when I was management, I spent many a night debating this on stage with my dear friend, Mark Pierce, who you may know, who was the second black chair of the National Labor Relations Board when I was still with management. There are pluses and minuses to amending the act. I don't disagree with you that the remedies have, I think, become very limited. So, yeah, let's have that discussion. I think we need to create an inducement to compromise so that it's a win-win situation. So no one side feels disadvantaged. And that can be done. Well, there, there was discussion about requiring mandatory arbitration of first contracts. And then the question became, where are the arbitrators? And I, of course, raised my hand, happy to do it. That's what I do for a living. 
management was not a big fan of that for obvious reasons. Because if you look at the statistics, unions win a majority of elections. However, they typically, or they may or may not get a first contract. And, you know, you look at what's happening with Starbucks and Amazon, the microcosm. Union activity in the South is almost unheard. Right. So I'm like, okay, is this a harbinger of something to come? Is it going to is it going to expand? Is this gonna are we there gonna be more more unions in the South? I don't think so, but it looks like there's there's an appetite for it among the employees, which You know, how it translates is hard to say. You know, and you're active in New Jersey, Lyra, so you know last year, and myself and the former chair of the uh, Newark office of the uh, NLRB, who's retired, do an annual program with Lyra. We've had folks from Amazon and Starbucks and their attorneys. Fascinating, but when you start organizing fast food, You're talking high turnover establishments. Employers will wait it out until those individuals go away. Not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's how the game is played. Yeah, yeah. And right now there are how many, and, and I get the Starbucks and Amazon efforts organizing, and but I think Starbucks has been like 100 complaints issued or some huge number. Amazon, unfortunately, you're seeing the union split into factions, which is never helpful. There's been some articles in the New York Times about that as they mature as a union. So if you do this for a living, which I do, one of my focuses in undergrad was was, uh, labor history, it's fascinating. And we're sitting here now talking about a statute that's almost 100 years old that is as relevant now as it was 100 years ago. And the question, no, absolutely. Yeah, and the question absolutely. becomes, to your point, should it be uh, amended? Are the remedies adequate? Do they reflect the realities of the workplace? Today's workplace. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, though. When you look at Like issues around email and unions' use of them and employees' use of them to organize, it's the same discussion that they were having back in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, the big ticket items are the compensation, money. Actually, when I started collective bargaining back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was money. More recently, it was benefits and pensions. Now we're back to money. And what you're seeing now, and again, I'm, I'm a student of this stuff. I think this is stuff. I am so fortunate, and I said this at a hearing yesterday, I am so fortunate that after 40 years of doing this, I'm still having fun, and we're still discussing the same legal issues because really- I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel the yeah. same way. I like what there I do. There you go. I'm fortunate to be able to do what right. I like. Right, right. So you tell me when to come back. I would love to have this discussion. Also, 
You and I both know a number of folks who do this, so it is always fun to get more people in and have uh, have an, an ongoing discussion. If you have anyone you would recommend for me to interview as part of this series, I'm looking for representation in a geographical representation so that it's not one coast or another coast. I want to do the midway. I want inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want people to feel inclusive, right. included, and that it's not just New York and California. Sure, sure. That's what my podcast, I've talked to people all over the country, all over the world. They've been generous with their time. And I just have to generate more activity around my social media. And I don't have time. I understand. Well, you know, I told you I'm heading out for the National Bar Association's annual conference tomorrow in Minnesota. But you touched on another interesting area, which is the multinationalist aspects to labor relations. I've bargained all over the world. And I will tell you, when you start comparing and contrasting different labor relations systems, again, this is just fun stuff. This is just fascinating. Yeah, It is. You're right. There you go. You're right. Until next time, Dean, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Beverly. Talk to you soon. Bye. Safe travels. So long. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support, and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at B.A. Williams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.